I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And dignity is highly important, no question about that. Uh, We had a recent non-candidate for president talking about the dignity of work. And oftentimes people work at jobs that they not only don't like, but are really dangerous. And yet they don't feel they have the power to do anything about it. One of the most potent political moments in the early 20th century was the 1906 publication of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. When I was growing up, every kid was instructed to read that book. Somehow I doubt that's required reading in Trump's America. On the face of it, the focus was largely on unsanitary working conditions in the meatpacking industry. In 1904, Upton Sinclair had spent seven weeks gathering information Uh, while working incognito in the meatpacking plants of Chicago stockyards. The historic book reveals not just incredibly unsanitary working conditions, producing unimaginably unsafe foods, but also presented a bigger picture of the totally unregulated capitalist system by which corrupt owners profited hugely at the direct expense of the people working for them in the factories who were often newly arrived immigrants. The book changed the course of American history as it got Congress to impose new safety and sanitary working conditions. And today we still remain the beneficiaries of such reasonable government regulation. Well, guess what? As in the entirety of where President Trump is taking us, the corrupt period now called Uh, The Gilded Era, then called the Gilded Era in the 1890s, in which the super-rich ruled with no bounds, is making a comeback. Thank you, Donald Trump. Witness the fact that in late January 2019, the Trump administration blocked a rule requiring most employers to report details of workplace injuries. As with the 1890s, the powers that be are working to reinstill an American political and economic system whereby we all serve the super rich. No questions asked. You take what you can scrape up. As with the jungle's characters, workers are made to feel lucky to have any job, no union, no health or safety protection. Which brings us to today's discussion. Jonathan D. Carmel's new book is called Dying to Work. Death and Injury in the American Workplace. And he says, as he says, nearly all of it is hidden in plain sight. In this era of widespread, pervasive, and blatant disregard for social justice by the Trump administration, it's little surprise this topic remains largely unseen. Jonathan Carmel, thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Thank you for having me on your show. And uh, Jonathan Carmel has practiced labor and employment law in Chicago for 35 years, 
representing unions and their employee benefit funds. Carmel is a fellow with the College of Labor and Employment Lawyers and has been recognized as an Illinois super lawyer. And that's a big state. Carmel is a frequent panelist on labor and employment policies and has lectured internationally. Recently, Carmel's become co-chair of the American Bar Association's Occupational Safety and Health Committee, where he hopes to increase awareness of the important issues affecting workers and their families. Well, so much going on politically and economically and in terms of social injustice these days. What sparked you to write this new book, Dying to Work, Death and Injury in the American Workplace? Who is the target audience for this? Well, the target audience, uh, I intended the target audience to be the general public. People like me when I, before I started writing the book who were unaware of the scope of the problem of workplace injuries and deaths still occurring in America. And I say people like me, and I was, I've been practicing traditional labor and employment law for now more than 35 years, and uh, I, I was embarrassed to acknowledge to myself, frankly, that I was unaware of the problem. And I thought, well, if I'm unaware of it, um, I'm not the only one. And I wanted to get the story out. And I wanted to tell stories, not just statistics, and that's why I wrote the book, make people become aware of the problem. Yeah, it's so interesting. What I mean, there's so many bizarre things going on these days. There's a lot of important stuff that we're just not aware of that is, as has been said, hidden in plain view. And when we think of dangerous jobs, we think, of course, first of miners, construction workers, oil and gas workers, railroad workers who've always been the most obvious poster children for workplace death and injury. But tell us about, <clears throat> excuse me, some of the other jobs seemingly safe that that nonetheless can be quite dangerous. What would our lives look like were it not for the labor of people in jobs with a higher than average rate of on-the-jobs injury and death? Well, our, our lives today would be unimaginable without the workers going to their workplaces every day, and and making the things that we take for granted, you know, from cell phones and self, you know, you need cell phone towers to, to communicate. And the and the men and women who put up the towers and service them, they have, you know, significantly uh, high injury and, and, and death rate. Oh, um, true. People who put food on our table, the chicken we eat, the the pork and the beef we eat. It, in our homes and in fancy restaurants, those are put given to us or provided to us by workers every day who uh, go to work um, at great risk for their uh, health and their safety. So one of the things that intrigued me about writing the book was I didn't want to write only about the poster children, as you you've right. described them, the coal miners, the offshore uh, oil platform workers, although I have a couple stories about them. Yes. But I wanted to talk about workers who we come into contact with every day of our lives, either directly or talking on a cell phone, for example, or eating a steak, for example. We, we come into contact either directly or indirectly with the people who do this work, and um, we don't think about it. Uh, so I've included grocery store workers, a oh. very dangerous job, hotel workers, equally dangerous, uh, nurses, and others. 
and and these are people that we come into contact with every day, and they're people that we know. Um, you know, mm-hmm. your checker at your local grocery store, who you go in his or her line every day to check out a few groceries, you talk to them, and then one day they're not there anymore, and uh, maybe because they've been injured. Yeah, it's, well, again, so much is going on in plain sight that we just don't even think about. And it's it's interesting that, you know, even though you spent more than 30 years as a union side lawyer, and thank you for that as a union supporter, you came to the acute awareness of the issues of workplace deaths and injuries, in your words, embarrassingly late. Now, given your background and career, how, how did that happen? Well, um, for one, in my practice, I, I, as I said, I do traditional union work, which we work with, you know, we represent workers in their organizing struggles when they get terminated from their jobs. Uh-huh. Um, but when a worker gets injured, the legal uh, resources and process available to them are limited really to workers' compensation benefits. And Fortunately or not, fortunately or whatever, our, my firm doesn't really practice workers' compensation. So I've never been involved in that aspect of it. I, I was a, I'm certainly have been aware that workers get injured. But I didn't know until I, Frank, one night a friend of mine talked me into going to a lecture in Chicago on, on uh, workplace injuries and safety on a Saturday evening of all times. And I thought, okay, well, let's go, and then we'll have a beer afterwards. And... Um, I walked away blown away uh, at the statistics that I was uh, that I heard that evening, and I turned to my friend. I said, "Somebody needs to write a book about this, but not just about the statistics, but they need to tell the stories of injured workers and their families, and 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 get us to become angry, aware, and active in doing something about the problem." interested in finding out that's that's you know one of the efforts of this show we're part of a huge effort to uh, wake everybody up to what's really going on that we are not powerless that uh, having information is the first step and part of information of course is learning from history and as people have heard me say probably too many times one thing i've learned from history is that we never learn from history but in labor history, American labor history, perhaps the most infamous, preventable, horrible tragedy was the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in the early 20th century. I must have gone to progressive school district because we did learn about that in elementary school. Uh, I, my guess is kids probably don't so much these days. Briefly, what happened and in, in what ways did that fundamentally change the relationship between workers and them, their employers, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in New York City? Well, this occurred at, during the what they call the progressive era in our country back then. Uh, we're, we're now going through a new kind of progressive era. But back then, um, uh, workers were starting to organize into unions, uh, particularly in the... Uh, garment districts and garment industries in New York City and and other large uh, cities on the East Coast, but predominantly New York. And a lot of the workers there were uh, immigrant, immigrant 
women. Yes. Uh, there were men in the garment industry as well. Um, and at the Triangle Factory, what happened simply was that uh, a fire occurred there. Amongst all um, the rags and, and stuff, the yeah. exit uh, to get out of the workplace, get out of the uh, small factory that was there. And keep in mind, this was, I think I, if I recall, a nine or ten story building that's still standing in, yes. in, in, in and around Greenwich Village today. Mm-hmm. Um, it was Back then it was a high rise, and the factory, the workplaces were going vertical at the time. Uh, and that was new architecture, new construction, and what they didn't do in this place is they didn't keep the exits open and free from obstructions, and workers, when the place went up in flames, couldn't get out. Yep. Many of them, uh, in the end, jumped to their death. Yep. And in a matter of less than 20 minutes, uh, 142 Oof. workers or 46 workers were killed. Wow. And, so that and that really um, was the spark, no pun intended, right. but it really was a spark that, um, that caused workers, the unions, and the general public to become outraged and active and demand workplace safety, uh, workplace regulations that would protect workers. And that took off for a while. And on upstate, you know, at the state capitol in Albany, there were legislature, you know, uh, yeah. politicians who were advocating for, uh, for, this, uh, for these kinds of workplace safety standards. And back then, you know, when I was doing my research, I was reading some of the stories about this and the politicians who were against regulation Mm. were touting the same or were spouting the same rhetoric that we hear today. Uh So when you made the comment about history, you know, history keeps repeating itself. Back then they said, you know, these are job killers. In fact, they were actually, you know, what was happening was that workers were getting killed. And and that businesses would move from New York and go other places where there were no regulations. Well, we have that occurring today. So yes. nothing really changes. It's all, you know, much of it is the same. Well, it's the interests of, well, there are, it's, it's kind of hard to believe, but... You know, in the Gilded Age, they they had uh, of the eighteen nineties just untethered free market capitalism. The workers were just they were things to be used and and thrown away, seen as as no rights, and they were just damn lucky to get any job at all and had no right to complain or unionize or or want safety. And there are people. It seems hard to believe, but it's true. You know it, and I know it. That would that are interested in in going back there and fighting against regulations and as you said, job killers, <laughs> calling them job killers. It's just it's it's amazing how uh, that people believe that people who get most screwed by this system actually believe that. But that may be another story. And speaking of stories, there's a lot of stories in the book, and the book is called Dying to Work. Death and Injury in the American Workplace, and our guest today is its author, Jonathan D. Carmel. And uh, when I think of 
dangerous jobs. I mean, I get claustrophobia, okay? I'll admit it. I'm, I'm a wimp when it comes to going down into any kind of cave or anything. I would choose death over working in a coal mine, I think, or a gold mine, whatever kind of mine. Perhaps one story would bring some of the horrific statistics to life. How did Scott Howard suffer as a result of his organizing to make mines safer for himself and other coal miners? And, you know, we can just imagine the dangers of coal mines. Well, Scott Howard um, was and is a, uh, was a uh, activist in the mine, and, not, and really an activist of one. I mean, he was a member of the union, uh, mine workers uh, in the mines. And again, today in Kentucky, where Scott worked, um, there are no more union mines. So they're all gone. Wow. Uh, so I, no union mines. When Scott worked, he was bringing to it the attention of his co-workers and to his supervisors and bosses uh, workplace hazards, you know, hazardous conditions in the mines where he was working. And... You know, Scott was blackballed, he was terminated, he was, uh, and then at one point he was um, attacked in the dark recesses of this mm-hmm. mountain. Uh, out of, you know, he, he, to this day, he doesn't know who or what happened, but somebody came from behind him and clubbed him in the head, and he was wearing a, a miner's helmet, knocked the helmet off of him, and he was left on the ground, in the underground mine, uh, almost dying. And uh, he went on uh, leave for a while, medical leave, and he came back, and he came back uh, stronger, and he fought for miners' rights to have, you know, uh, what they call walk-around representatives hmm. who can walk around and point out without fear of retaliation, let alone physical harm, uh, point out hazardous conditions in, in their mind. And he had to go all the way to the you know, Court of Appeals, Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals in Cincinnati to, to uh, get his job back and, and, and get the right to go back into the mines as a miner's representative. It was really it's an incredible story of you know, courage on his part. Yes, courage, bravery. And, of course, I think of the great old movie Norma Ray about organizing yeah. that. And there's something about, I mean, America has, has many different mm, mindsets, shall we say. There are people who think making as much money as you can, being you know, driven by unbelievable greed, is a good thing. And sometimes people in lower economic classes uh, defend that the most strongly. But there's the other tradition of, of unionizing, of speaking out as with uh, uh, Scott Howard and with so many uh, people whose stories you tell in the book and, and Norma Ray and the people who speak out against uh, you know, corruption and for safety in the workplace. Uh, and we need to, uh, to be aware of this because the tide may have been one way, but now it's kind of swinging the other. As you said, there's no union mines left. That's that's kind of amazing and, and, and kind of shocking to me. I mean, geez, if it weren't for the United Mine Workers, we would have a lot of dead miners, I have to say, and, you know, black lung disease and, and things like that. 
1970, that great liberal, whom we didn't think of as a liberal at the time, Richard Nixon, of all people, signed the Occupational Safety and Health Act, or OSHA. What, what compact between worker and employer did that codify? Since OSHA's inception, how steeply have worker deaths decreased? And to what extent, a bunch of questions here, can we credit OSHA with that? Along those lines, you writes, no federal agency has been the target of more political tug of war than OSHA. Well, it, it, it's fascinating, and you write about that, of course. I mean, we're talking about your book here, Dying to Work, Death and Injury in the American Workplace. You talk about uh, the birth of, of OSHA uh, and different sides being involved there. Why has there been such a political tug of war over OSHA? What's at stake and most curiously, I'd like to find out who funds the interests that advocate for the abolition of OSHA altogether. So a lot of questions there. Have at it, please, John. Yeah, so um, OSHA uh, was enacted in 1970, as you said, signed by, I wouldn't call him a liberal, I know you were uh, tongue-in-cheek there, uh, yeah. Richard Nixon. Well, we comparatively, a- yeah. Go ahead. Had a solid Democratic majority in Congress, so he wasn't given much uh-huh. choice at the time. Aha, uh-huh, interesting. Um, but, but it was it was a struggle to get OSHA uh, into law, and it was the first comprehensive federal statute that protected private sector workers outside of the mining industry. Um, it has its own separate set of uh, statutes and regulations, but. For most of the workplaces in the United States, they're covered by OSHA. Most vast majority of workers are all covered by OSHA. And to, and since its inception, since it was enacted, it was the target of defunding by um, Congress, mostly when there were Republican majorities in Congress. And like a lot of great pieces of legislation, even... Obamacare, they, they don't kill it entirely, but they pick it apart and, and make it less effective. And, and, and in this case, less effective to protect Americans, American workers, from workplace injuries and, and, and other hazards. Um, and, it, and it happened from the get-go. And I write about in the book all the repeal measures that were uh, put forward in Congress to try and repeal OSHA. Um, but one of the things that's happened now, OSHA will be uh, 50 years old pretty soon, um, is that it hasn't been modernized and reformed in a way to uh, account for the change in the workplace in the United States in the last 50 years. There's, the workplace has grown by leaps and bounds the number of workers. The types of work being done is completely different today than it was 50 years ago. The the kinds of hazards that were around 50 years ago and are here today are completely different. And the only way you can regulate uh, or hold an employer accountable for a hazardous condition and accountable by uh, uh, citations and penalties in OSHA, which are minuscule, Nonetheless, the only way you can hold them accountable is if they violated a regulation 
a regulated hazard, which requires you know uh, a long administrative process to enact a regulation. So there, with the change in the workplace, there are so many unregulated hazards, well-known hazards that we just don't have, like I said, regulations on. And then if a worker gets injured for as a result of that hazard, the employer isn't accountable. And uh, so as we grew our workplace and grew the numbers of workers and the number of different kinds of jobs, um, the hazards have grown as well and the number of unregulated hazards, leaving employers fairly, you know, uh, immune from uh, any legal or financial uh, penalty. Oh, and they love I, I, that. I, I was just at a at a meeting at a conference uh, a couple of weeks ago, the, the OSHA committee conference we you referenced, and there were some new decisions that were just been issued by the OSHA commission, which is the governing legal body. And uh, what the commissioners were talking about in a decision affecting workplace violence, where hospital workers were getting stabbed and beaten by their patients who many of them are mentally ill and one case was a woman got stabbed to death nine times by a, a, a patient that was deemed not to be a work uh, a regulated uh, workplace violence is, an, is often not a regulated uh, uh, hazard oh. even though it's widely accepted to be a hazardous condition so it's it's just Boggles my mind uh, what's going on there in the in the world of, of OSHA. That is amazing that people could be so not just heartless, but it's it's just dumb economically. I did want to ask about who, where, where does I mean? It's all with, you know, follow the money, as they say. Who who funds the think tanks that advocate for the abolition of OSHA altogether? Where does that money come from? What what interests are there? Well, I know where some of the money comes from, and I write about it in the book. Uh, and there are two prominent um, uh, conservative, right wing, libertarian, uh, <laughs> anti regulatory think tanks. One is the Cato Institute, and the other of is the Mercatus. Institute. What's the second one? Mercatus, M-E-R-C-A-T-U-S, and they come out of, um, uh, and they're and they're being funded by, among others, the Koch brothers. What a surprise! <laughs> what a surprise! <laughs> and you know they pose as free market libertarians, yeah. and you know we don't need regulations because the market will correct any inefficiencies or, in this case, any hazardous conditions because uh-huh. workers won't work in hazardous workplaces and employers won't have a workforce, so they'll have to compensate by making themselves, uh, by, by removing the hazardous conditions voluntarily in order to attract a, uh, a, a workforce, and that's complete hogwash. <laughs> uh, it's complete hogwash. The market doesn't work. This uh, instance, because workers, you know, when they go out and f- go in and fill out an application at the human resource uh, uh, office, sure. 
they, you know, they're not going to ask. They don't know to ask. And even if they ask the human resource person, tell me about your safety record before I decide that to accept your job, which, by the way, hasn't been offered to me. <laughs> uh, and they're not going to get the job. Right. Or if, even if they're told, even if they know the information, what do they do? Well, the right-wingers and the free marketers say, well, the worker can demand, well, I'll work in your place, as dangerous place as it is, but I'm going to demand a premium in my wage, you know, $5 more, a dollar more. I'm going to bargain by myself. By myself. And again, we know that doesn't work. Uh, they'll be showing the door, no thank you, take your application, and go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's the kind of stuff that they're throwing out there, and it's being re um, yeah it, it, it's being repeated repeatedly by politicians in in Congress and in state legislatures. You know, this this the talking points are all over the place in in, um, hmm. in the anti by the anti regulation crowd. Anti-regulations crowd. You know, I've seen it so much, the so-called right-to-work legislation, yep. which is just anti-union. And the whole effort, you know, it's been part of the United States for a long time. The, the idea of, you know, the royalty versus democracy. I mean, it really, in my mind, does boil down to that. And what, what do you say... To, to people who say, as, as you mentioned in the beginning, that regulations are job killers. There, are, there seems to be, you know, since I've been around, there's a lot of political talking points about regulations as job killers. We need to uh, eliminate these uh, uh, heavy-duty regulations that are killing jobs, that are killing incentive. They, we don't need them. These the employers are burdened by them. They'll just take their work elsewhere to places like China or South Korea or Vietnam, where there's virtually no workplace regulations, and you know people who work for basically slave labor under slave conditions. What what do you say to that? I mean, just aside from being the moral thing and the ethical thing, economically, how how do you respond to that? Well, I, I respond follows that uh, there really is no evidence that any particular regulation is a job killer or hurting a business. Um, we can think, and, and that's just been the, the narrative and the, and, and, and the rhetoric that most recently in our lifetime, the past 30 plus years, Ronald Reagan was president, that's, that's been the anti-regulatory fever that everybody seems to have, I shouldn't say everybody, but a vast majority uh, of Americans uh, have, have seemed to accept it as, as gospel. And it's just not true. And what people forget about all the regulations, forgetting you know, worker re safety regulations, all the regulations that are part of our daily lives that, again, we don't think about. These kill jobs that have seat belts in cars, and, and, and air, airbags and cars killed the auto industry? I, I don't think so. Other things have harmed the auto industry, but it hasn't been the seatbelts <laughs> that have saved lives. Or, or regulations, you know, re regulating our food. Um, you know, regulating our medicine. And regulating our air and water. I mean, these, you know, regulations have a bad, uh, a bad 
reputation if you just sit and listen to the garbage that's spewed out by the you know, Koch brothers and their politicians in their pocket. But people need to think about the good things regulations do. And they do keep people safe at work. The, the, the evidence shows, and the anti-regulators hate this point, when the decrease in deaths in the workplace has declined precipitously since OSHA was enacted. And there's still a lot more work to do. And they don't have a real answer to that. They, they kind of fumble around and say, well, it's due to other causes. Well, no, it's not. It's due to the fact that there's been enforcement, there's been regulations put in place, companies have had to uh, re-engineer their, their uh, manufacturing uh, sure. uh, requirements sometimes. They've had to do training. They've had to give uh, workers safety equipment, uh, et cetera. Uh, but that hasn't hurt our economy, and that's saved the lives of countless millions of workers in America. Yeah, we're talking about a new book, Dying to Work. It's got an interesting cover with a... Uh, a uh, figure going upstairs and just about to fall down a big step. And the subtitle of the book, Dying to Work, is Death and Injury in the American Workplace. We're talking with its author, Jonathan D. Carmel. And when people think about uh, workplace deaths and injury, everybody knows about the offshore BP Deepwater Horizon big, big explosion. But there were no criminal charges brought against BP. I find that how can it be that there were no criminal charges brought against BP? I mean, all this tremendous oil leak and a lot of people died rather horrible deaths. How'd they get away with that? Well, for one, um, OSHA, which regulates the workplaces of these offshore oil workers, OSHA has uh, doesn't it can refer for criminal prosecution to the Justice Department. Uh, some, uh, they can make some referrals, and they have over the years, but and I write about this, that they've been practically nil. I mean, they don't make many referrals at all, and then the referrals that they do make to the Justice Department are often not uh, followed up. So there isn't a real criminal element to enforcing, criminal prosecution element to enforcing uh, health and safety standards. Uh, so it wasn't surprising to me that nobody was prosecuted. But what is occurring around the country in, in certain uh, cities and towns, uh, New York and Los Angeles in particular, um, is that local prosecutors, uh -huh. DA's office in Manhattan and the uh, prosecutor's office in Los Angeles County, they've brought some criminal actions against employers who have caused the deaths of their workers, uh, you, know, on, you know, negligent homicide theories, and they've, they've obtained prosecution, or they've obtained conviction. Mm. And um, that sends a message to the business community that, at least in those jurisdictions, that, uh, you know, 
if the worker dies on, in your place, we're going to go look at it and see if there's been some uh, criminal yeah. negligence or, uh, involved in their death. And we'll prosecute you for that. And that's the message that's being sent. And that's important. But it's, it's isolated, mm-hmm. albeit in two very large uh, uh, jurisdictions, Los Angeles and New York. Yeah, interesting. It's it's as is often the case. Uh, state legislatures have been called the uh, the workplace of democracy, the experimentation of democracy, and that you know the federal government often doesn't have the answers. You got to turn to your state government, and uh, sometimes that has been happening. And at the federal level, the election of Trump was an awful surprise to millions and millions of Americans, but it didn't come from nowhere. I was, like many, shocked at the elevation of of what had been hidden racism, white supremacy, and unbridled corporate rule, the demand for unbridled corporate rule, freeing them from the constraints of any workplace regulations. It's just like, yeah, they had their way. Now, doctrinaire Marxist analysis would insist... Oh, it's just the nature of capitalism itself. Perhaps I'm naive, but I don't accept that all who participate in capitalism are driven by pure, unrestrained greed. As we mentioned uh, earlier, uh, Upton Sinclair, who wrote The Jungle, he was a socialist who later ran a very strong campaign for governor of California. But instead of either capitalism unchained In America, we put regulations in place to protect worker health and safety. Given the turn to the hard political right, the corporate rule, the the plutocracy, I still believe, and again, maybe I'm naive, I still believe most employers, of course, want to make money, but they also recognize that worker protection is of benefit in the long run. What are your thoughts about that? I think uh, and I'll acknowledge, and I've done it before, there are lots of great employers out there, great companies who provide safe workplaces. And, and they want to uh, make safety a chief component of their business model. But there are still lots more who aren't out there deliberately injure their employees, but it's not a top-level commitment to them. And there's a lot of, you know, uh, lip service given to it. They have, you know, signs saying, you know, it's been 100 days since we've been right. dream, by the way. Those, That's all they need to do, put up a sign. Sometimes disincentive programs, uh, uh, disincentivizing workers from reporting injuries. So that's another story. Ah. Uh, so I don't believe that you know every American employer out there is out to hurt their employees. I don't believe you know you know uh, digressing a bit that Boeing, for example, right. deliberately you know did something <laughs> dastardly to the seven thirty seven Maxes because they don't want their airplanes to crash. I mean that's a bad business model. Bad business. So I <laughs> so I think you know there are good employers out there. I think there needs to be more regulation and more enforcement and more teeth in that to make sure to give some of these employers a little goose to a little bump to say, you know, pay attention to this stuff. We'll provide you with the tools to 
and, and the resource to help you train your employees and identify certain hazards. And by the way, identifying hazardous conditions is a key component to regulation. Hmm. If you identify a hazardous condition, then it can be remedied, remediated, identified, and workers become safer. But a key component to identifying hazardous condition is having reporting by employers of, of work safe, uh, worker injuries or worker deaths. And as you mentioned, I think at the beginning of this uh, segment, uh, that, that's one of the things Trump has done away with, was this uh, electronic reporting system that, that required employers to uh, report injuries. And, th- and that's information not used to prosecute employers, but to gain information on, okay, now we understand this particular industry, this particular job may be hazardous, and let's go in there and figure out how to fix it. And that's information's key, and that is, yes. uh, that's been uh, muffled uh, under uh, hmm. this administration. Interesting how, you know, the old saying, knowledge is power. Somehow, I can't help but think that the interests who say, oh, we need less regulation to help American business, and, uh, you know, we need a weaker OSHA, are the same people who say there's no climate change. You know, it's just denial of the obvious. And somehow they think it'll make, well, maybe not the economy stronger, it'll make them richer. I mean, maybe it's just that simple. It probably is just, just plain that simple that, uh, you know, if they have to pay attention to, to regulation, gosh, it might cost them a few pennies. But again, how regulation, there, there's this impression across America with a lot of people who think that regulation is, is killing business and industry. We'll, you know, bring back coal. That, clearly that's not happening because of many, many reasons, but it's not because of regulation, although that... Who was that guy who owned the coal mine that a lot of people died and who actually had the chutzpah to run for U.S. Senate? <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, anyway, there's so many deaths and injuries that, that we don't see that really are everywhere, even at department stores, which leads us... Kroger is a big department store across America. What conditions led to Laurie Keene's death at Kroger? How large a penalty did OSHA propose? Why was Kroger shielded from further liability? And and how do we end up with workers' compensation laws that protect corporate assets so dramatically? Well, the story I write about Lori Keene, she was a um, a clerk at a Kroger grocery store in Indiana. And and Kroger's a a good company. They're a union company. Um, But they had an accident. want to use that word. Lori Keene was uh-huh. in the back of the store operating a forklift, as she was instructed to do, moving around large pallets of water bottles. They were all uh, on a wooden pallet stacked up five high, and then another pallet on top of that, another pallet on top of that, and they're all shrink-wrapped. Mm-hmm. She's moving them around in the back of the store, and then, you know, this tall tower of water bottles uh, uh, and and she wasn't trained. And, and again, Uh-oh. almost every one of the accidents, uh, injuries, and deaths that I write about 
and, and more that I didn't write about, they were all preventable. And training is the key to preventing injuries and deaths. And Lori wasn't trained on how high you can stack these and and how to move them around. I mean, it's just not simple by putting forklifts under a pallet and lifting it up and moving it to another spot. And they all collapsed, tipped over on her. And she was crushed to death by water bottle. She died a couple days later in the hospital, never recovered. And uh, I write about other stories, tragic stories like Lori's. Uh, Another uh, grocery store worker who had her arm ground off in a meat grinder. Oh, God. And you, you, you asked about liability. Yeah. Well, that worker, uh, Hannah Phillips, was prevented from suing her employer directly for her injuries. And all workers who get injured, they're prevented from suing their employers for their injuries or their death. Really? Uh, and that's because of workers' compensation. There's what they call the workers' compensation bar, bars direct lawsuits against an employer for a worker's injuries or their death. Really? And that bargain, that grand bargain, was struck at the turn of the last century um, between labor and business uh, and said, uh, we don't want any more lawsuits, but we'll create this workers' compensation funds and we'll pay injured workers for their lost time and will pay injured workers for their uh, uh, loss uh, for their uh, health and their medical costs right. and if they're disabled we'll, we'll pay them more pay funeral expenses and it was supposed to be a non-litigious compensation system and it's anything but that today it's a horrible system it doesn't work for workers and um, it works for insurance Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. A government is supposed to be there for us, for the for the common good. Oftentimes, it's not. Most of the time, it's not. And I would like to think, anyway, that the new Congress of 2018 would be more receptive to advocating for workers than we've seen in a long time. Over the years, legislators have legislators have tried to push for new ideas for strengthening OSHA and reforming workers' compensation laws. Tell us about a few of them. Might any uh, find fresh advocates in the new Congress? I don't know, uh, especially in this time. We're so polarized, and we're, we're so focused on the latest tweet of this president. Mm-hmm. And yeah. even before this presidency, even when we had a Democratic Congress, you know, and I've been representing unions and workers uh, for my whole career, and it's just not that important. It, it, you know, it's not as sexy as uh, a special counsel investigation or, or <laughs> some other. Uh, oh, it's all theater. Shiny object, legislative <laughs> shiny object. And yes. Workers just get shut to the they back. Get the short end of the stick. Yeah. And and that was one of the things that just, you know, was eye-opening for me when I was writing the book. And, and, and I kept going over and over in my mind as all these politicians on both sides of the aisle give lip service to American workers. We're, you know, the, we're, you know, you know, protect American workers. We love American workers. Right. You know, and nobody does a darn thing for American workers in 
including in health and safety. Yeah. Uh, and everybody is an American worker. And, and you would think American workers would get outraged and say, protect us, help us. And, and that, again, may have been a naive goal of mine, but that is certainly one of the goals of writing the book, was to bring the awareness of what's going on, both in the workplace and in the halls of government. Uh, and that whole shiny, I mean, politics is always theater. I mean, I, yeah. I, do, I do think Trump was a great uh, draw in the 2016 election among the 16 other candidates because it was theater, good theater, and the advertisers loved it. And now, you know, it, it, we're talking about, like, you know, peop, everybody's aware of the opioid crisis, which is horrible and tragic and kills a lot of people. But <laughs> what about, I mean, comparing uh, opioid addiction and reducing workplace injuries, uh, obviously, there's a lot more attention on, on opioid addiction. But but I, I, I wonder if, if you might be able to, to talk about that, you know, how it doesn't, it's not the shiny new object, but, but work-related injuries, uh, how, how does that compare with, with, with opioid overdoses? Well, there is some relationship, and I'm not an expert on the opioid right. crisis, but workers who get injured and get chronically uh, and have chronic injuries and chronic pain, pain yeah. often are prescribed opioids. Oh, so there is a relationship there. And, oh, and wow. some, and there's some other reasons for why people get addicted. Um, another point uh, is, you know, in terms of the, the focus of our politicians and the focus of our resources in this country, which we have great resources. Yeah, amazing. And I, and I write about it in the book at the beginning, is that we, we've focused on... Uh, protecting Americans from terrorist attacks. Right. No doubt, you know, in the, in the New Zealand tells us again, reminds us again that we're at risk. But the odds are of getting injured or killed in a terrorist attack is horrible as what happened in New Zealand uh, was or in, in Paris a couple of years ago or wherever. Yeah. Are, are minuscule. They're, they're in the odds are I have better chance of winning a lottery ticket uh, than getting injured or killed in a, in a terrorist attack. But yet we spend trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars since 2001 uh, protecting Americans from terrorist attacks. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be, but the focus and the odds of getting hurt at work are, are infinitely, yes. unfortunately, better than getting injured in a terrorist attack. And yet we don't resource uh, our agencies. We don't resource uh, in order to protect Americans from getting injured at work. It th doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Hmm. Very interesting. The book is called Dying to Work, Death and Injury in the American Workplace. Why is, is it, it, you talked about the word accident. Why is scrutinizing the word accident a good place to start? Well, there are lots of things we can do to get this awareness uh, from the bottom of the totem pole in America towards the top. And I even was guilty this morning when we were talking of, of slipping up and using the word accident a couple of times. And I did it when I was writing until I realized 
these were preventable. An accident is something that's unforeseen by definition. It's unforeseen. It's not. It's it's not preventable. It's it's, it's by chance. And ah, every one yeah. of these injuries and deaths that I write about, and more that I didn't write about, and you can read them every day about them every day if you uh, are, are connected to the right uh, uh, blog site. You know, uh, sites that I am that report these every day. Um, they're they're not accidents. They were preventable incidents. And in fact, OSHA doesn't use the word accident. Why is that important? Because changing the narrative uh, from accidents, which are not preventable, uh, lets employers off the hook. Uh And frankly, it makes the worker uh, to blame for their own injury and their own death. And that's not acceptable, what's happening out there. They are preventable deaths and preventable injuries. Very interesting point. Well, you argue that a new awareness begins with proximity and with using the pronoun we. Workplace health and safety must become a shared responsibility, you say, because we are all at risk. I can imagine many people saying, no, not me. I'm not at risk. How, how, do you, how do you convince people? And what do you mean that we are all at risk? How does it affect everyone? Well, most people, unless they're retired or, or disabled or can't work, some point in their life, even people who are retired, they were workers. We are all workers, uh, except maybe the Koch brothers and other <laughs> gilded uh, pharaohs like them. But, but we're all workers, and there are certainly some jobs that are less dangerous terms of their hazardous conditions. Mine in a, in a law office is not, I would say, a particularly dangerous job, uh, right, right. hazardous to my health and safety. But putting that aside, most workers um, sometime in their life are involved in a workplace that has hazardous conditions. Yes. I, it was for me when I was younger. I can think of all the jobs I did, including jobs where I got hurt. Yeah, um, here. So we're all we're all at risk. We send our kids, you know, go get a job at age sixteen or fifteen, and off they go. Yeah. And go work at a grocery store and see what happened to Laurie Keene or Hannah Phillips. Hannah Phillips was a teenager when she got her arm chopped off, uh, and we send our kids to grocery stores to work. Uh, to Seven Eleven to work you know, at night and get robbed and, uh, and assaulted. Um, I mean, there's just... I know. What I, what I think about... Workplaces out there are dangerous, and we need to be aware of it. And when I think about some of the jobs I had in the 20s, I hadn't thought about that till you just brought them up. Whoa! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all kinds of stuff. Chemical, chainsaw, whatever. Absolutely. You know, forklifts. Happens all, and yet we depend on these things arriving to our supermarket and getting up to our table. Well, people are not powerless, of course. What can we, we the people, do to pressure our representatives to act to to protect our workers and to pre- prevent these these dangerous, avoidable uh, injuries? Well, 
again, one of the goals of the book was to get people aware of the problem and say, well, this isn't just going to, this will never happen to me or to my kids. It can and it will yeah. at some point. And, and people need to then understand that these are preventable and there are things that are, could be done that are not being done and are, and are being deliberately not being yeah. done uh-huh. to make workplaces safer. And people need to become angry. Anger fuels activism. Yes. It can't only be about anger, but you have to start. You have to start with awareness and anger and let's go do something about it. Right. And unfortunately, workplace deaths and injuries don't land on our, in, our, in our wheelhouse, if you will, until it happens to one of us. And then it's too late. We have to make noise. We have to make noise. Noise is the only thing that works in a democracy. Yep. The book is called Dying to Work, Death and Injury in the American Workplace. Jonathan D. Carmel, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. And uh, hopefully we can uh, help make workplaces safer and it helps the economy to do so. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you.